Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 26, John Jumps Around. Why do we act surprised when we have conflict with the world? What's the secret to doing the works of God? And why did Jesus have to leave this earth? Steve discusses these questions and more as he looks at John chapter 15, verse 18, through to the end of chapter 16. in a way that makes sense because even John jumps around a little bit in this. So I'm going to look at tonight under uh, five major themes. <coughs> the first one is the world and the disciples and by extension our relationship to the world. Number two, persecution. Number three, we're back to talking about the paraclete. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we much of our session was on uh, the paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit. And if you want to go back and look and review, uh, if you weren't with us in John 14, uh, but the the paraclete is translated the helper, the counselor, the comforter, the advocate, the teacher. But those are all just uh, our efforts with English, which is not as rich as the Greek, uh, to, to catch the the nuances of paraclete. John is the only one who calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete. So that's number three. Number four, of a theme of sorrow and joy, which has really, really been stirring in me these last several days. Um, and we'll see where the Lord takes us, because even as I was writing stuff down a few hours ago, it just kept changing. And then the last theme is Christ's victory. So, we're going to pick up in 15, 18 to 27. But remember, it was, um, it was in the, I think, early in the 4th century, uh, pardon me, in the 400s, that uh, St. Jerome was the one who wrote chapters and verses. And th- there were never chapters and verses here. And so you've got to be really careful when you're reading the scripture that you don't just stop because you get to the end of the chapter because very often one just flows into the other. And here's a classic example. Thematically, probably the chapter should have ended at 15 verse 17 and now this should be chapter 16 thematically. But in fact, it's 15 starting at uh, verse 18. <coughs> if the world hates you, Understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they do not know the one who sent me. That's really key for John. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else had done, they would not have sinned. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. When the counselor comes, that's the paraclete, the one I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. 
you will also testify because you've been with me from the beginning. So that's a long passage. Usually we go a lot shorter. But again, I want to just kind of hit some overarching things. And this first theme we're presented with is the world. In, in the, tonight's passage, John uses uh, the world eight times. So what does he mean by it? Well, there's two basic meanings. One is, as I've told you before, cosmos with a K. Uh, and that means the universe, it means the, the cosmos with the sea, it means the inhabited earth. We know that John said classically in uh, 3.16, <coughs> For God so loves the world that he created, uh, that uh, loves the world that he created and those in it. Uh, Genesis 1, he's creating the world and he keeps saying, and God saw that it was good. Um, so there's that meaning. However, um, this is what John really means all through this farewell passage when he talks about the world. He means the world as, as the place of the absence of God and his influence, the rejection of God's influence. That's what he means. This is his primary meaning. And it's marked by a lot of things. Um, you know, I'm suddenly in my mind, I'm thinking of Romans 1. Um, uh, I wasn't prepared to say that, but if you look through Romans 1, you'll see a pretty good definition of what John's talking about in the world. But here, what's he mean? Uh, it's, it's marked by indifference to others. It's marked by fear and intimidation. It's marked by, by a holding everything to themselves, a, a refusal to share resources the, the world uh, worldview is rigid. Uh, it is locked in ideologies and opinions and living in denial and illusions. I'm going to tell you why I'm getting this uh, a little bit further down, but let me just say that for John, and we'll unwrap this in a bit, writing at the end of the first century, he saw what was going on in the synagogue, there was no temple after AD 70, but was going on in the synagogue as, as almost like the personification of the world um, it, with its uh, rigid ideologies and living in denial. <clears throat> but I also have become very convinced in this multi-layered John, he's referring both to societal, cultural issues, but he is referring to personal issues. This is for me, personally, uh, the last four or five days as I've been weighing this, it's really hitting home to me uh, on, on the application of what John is writing and what Jesus said. So verse 18, <coughs> pardon me, sweetie, could I get a glass of water? In verse 18, he says, if the world hated you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Now watch this, these world references. Verse 19, because you were not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, uh, the world hates you. Um, there, again, we see this theme of being picked. You are, you're handpicked. You are selected personally. It's a personal word of being chosen um, uh, out of the world. Thank you, dear. He will, verse 16, uh, chapter 16, 8, uh, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're going to get there in about a half an hour. 
a really interesting passage. Verse 11, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Uh, Verse 20, you will weep, but the world will rejoice. I have come into the world, 28. I am leaving the world and going to the Father. You will have suffering in this world, 33. John is just shouting out the juxtaposition between disciples of Jesus and the world. The second theme we look at is persecution. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He said that, by the way, in 1520, but it's a theme that just keeps coming up. Because the disciples are in the world, but not of it, conflict and persecution are inevitable. Why do we always act so offended and so surprised and so appalled when there is conflict with the world? Why do we get our shirt in a knot uh, and, and, and as believers, we've got to stand up for our rights and we know what righteousness is. He's saying it's inevitable. This is what is going to happen. Now let's get to 16. We just covered that at world record speed, but it's okay because we're doing it thematically. 16 verse 1 to 4. Remember, there's no break there. Jesus said, I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I've told you these things so that when their time comes, you may remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning Because I was with you. Now he's saying, and we're going to see this, the paraclete, who's going to bring things to remembrance. Now, right off the bat, first verse, I've been thinking a lot about it. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. You've probably got several different words in your different translations for that. It is, lest you be scandalized. That is the literal word. Lest you be scandalized. I've told you these things, lest you be scandalized. It means to stumble. The word also means to give up, to fall away, to scatter, to become offended. Jesus used this several times in the synoptics. The the classic is in Matthew 26, 31. This very night... You will all scatter. You will all literally be scandalized. And he's quoting and referring to Zechariah 13, 7, where Zechariah prophetically says the sheep are going to be scattered. Strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. Okay, so let's look at a few things about this word. Because I think it's really key for us. Scandal caused many of Jesus' followers to fall away. For me, the most classic example has always been John 6. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. They thought, this is wacko. And they left in such great numbers that he turned to his friends and said, are you guys out of here too? Remember, and Pete said, where else could we go? But again and again, they were scandalized. Look at on his very first Uh, In Luke, his very first sermon, Luke 4, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, etc. And at first they went, wow! And then they were scandalized. They said, wait a minute. 
We know who his mother is. We know who his father, stepfather is. They were scandalized. Scandal caused many of Jesus' followers to fall away. So that's Jesus saying that to these 12. But now in John's day, 60 years later, isn't that amazing? 60 years later, some left the church and were leaving the church because they expected in Christ this happy, blissful, harmonious life. And what they were getting was intense trials, waves of persecution. It was only 107, so it was only maybe 12 years, 14 years later, Ignatius was, was uh, martyred. Polycarp was martyred. Um, it was really serious stuff. So again, what's Jesus doing? He's saying conflict with the world will happen. This is a non-negotiable. Stop acting surprised. Stop acting offended. It will happen. Here's another side that's quite interesting. In John's time, in the 80s and 90s, uh, we know historically that Jews who believed in Jesus, what we often now call Messianic Jews, um, were being expelled from the synagogue. They didn't want anything to do with them. Um, And it's interesting because there's a contrast here. You see that this isn't cookie-cutter Christianity because the Apostle Paul in uh, uh, the late 50s, early 60s, he was saying, I got a lot of hope for the Jews still. Uh, Romans eleven twenty six. I think they're all going to be saved. Now, 30 years later, John sees the synagogue representing the world's opposition to Jesus and the Father. In John's writing, he sees there's no indication that he says, oh, they're all going to come in too. He sees them as the uh, almost personification of the persecution that comes from the world. Okay? So that's the first thing we can learn from this. Secondly, Jesus tells them that they are to expect persecution for several reasons. It's really key that he told them this. Remember, this is the last, his last kick at the can before his resurrection. So he says, I'm telling you so you won't be surprised and so you won't be scandalized. You won't fall away. Um, He tells them how they're called to be like him. Called to be like him. To bring, he tells them to bring comfort and stability in the midst of the persecution and pain. He, he loves these guys. And he's trying to bring comfort and stabilize them because he knows what's going to happen in just a few hours. And so to me, what he's doing here, it, it points to the whole purpose of New Testament prophecy. And that is um, 1 Corinthians 14.3. Let me back it up. I don't think that's the whole purpose. But that's a foundational purpose of edification, encouragement, comfort. Edification means to be built up or stabilized. It's a, it's a building term. And that's exactly what he's doing. But I think there's a deeper reason why he's telling them. And it's something that John's getting at. Because remember, he fashioned this gospel from what Jesus said, right? We, we've said that a lot in the early few weeks. This is not the complete collection of what Jesus said. John said there's no way all the books couldn't hold it. 
He has fashioned a gospel for a particular purpose at the end of the first century. And I think what he's saying to these now eleven in that upper room, he's saying, you're going to be like me in the way you accomplish the works of God. Remember in John 6, what can we do to perform the works of God? Uh, They asked and Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe, which means cling to, that you cling to the one he has sent. How do we accomplish these works? Man, how do I get a healing ministry? How do I get a prophetic ministry? How do I do things where, and we saw last week that God says, yes, we want you to bear much fruit, but this is my father glorified. Remember that? But they're saying, okay, how do we do it? And they're ready for the big stuff. And he's saying, this is the work of God. Cling to, believing, cling to the one, the son that he has sent. So it's, they're not performed through their anointing or their power or their wisdom or their technique, certainly. Instead, he says, cling to him, which means do what he does. Be inseparable with the son. Go where he goes. So we're back to the theme of following him. You see, he tells them this because he knows that like him, you're going to do this like I do it. And by the way, he knows they're going to lay down their lives. Tradition tells us all but John, who was tortured, uh, were martyred. Remember uh, last week we saw in John 15, 13, no greater love had anyone than this, but that he laid down his life. This is what he's telling them. Almost all of them were martyred. But what he's saying in all of this passage It's a victorious passage. He's telling them to encourage them, to strengthen them, because their martyrdom was not defeat, but their lives became the seed that changed the whole world. I think that Jesus and John is telling us that here is the mystery of Christ and his gospel. It is so antithetical to the world's way They cannot even begin to see or understand it. This is how they're going to conquer the world, like Him. They're going to lay down their lives. They're going to do it through their poverty and through their smallness, not through their greatness and their anointing. Exactly the opposite. It is so entrenched in us that we want to do things through greatness, through anointing, through terrific technique. But he is saying through this whole passage tonight, whoa, stop it. There's the world and there's you who follow me. And they're going to persecute you and they're not going to understand you. And you are cut from two entirely different cloths. And yet it is so easy for us. So easy for me. So easy for me, I head up a, an organization, as you know, that, that's growing, and it's so easy for me to slip into anointing, technique, advertising, whatever. And he says, no, you're going to conquer the world through littleness and poverty. I think that's part of why uh, St. Francis has had such an incredible impact. Did you know there's no more entries in the, the U.S. Library of Congress on St. Francis than anyone, including Christ? 
Isn't that interesting? Because he understood this. It was a deep revelation. And that's not in my notes. So we'll move on. So the early church, part of what got them into trouble was they refused to adapt to the values of the dominant culture around them. Oh, how I wish we would refuse to adapt to the dominant culture around us. Fourthly, what is behind the world's persecution of believers is the powers. And I won't go a long time because we've talked about the powers that be several times for this whole series. But the spiritual powers, Paul sometimes calls them principalities, sometimes calls them powers. They are these spiritual powers that, that influence the structures of society. Remember we talked about that a while ago? So it is so important, as he's talking to them about the world, he's not saying, you know, don't go to movies and don't smoke. He's saying there's an entirely different system. And in the invisible realm, the older I get, the more I see how powerful and how ultimately more real the spiritual realm is. Because it's eternal. It's eternal. Christina and I were talking with somebody, I don't remember who, just the last couple of days, about intercession and impagnations and how we absolutely could not do what we do without intercession. And you know how we know that? Because about 28 years ago, we tried to do a wonderful thing without intercession. And we had someone literally die. We had people mug. We had people go into deep depression. Because we, there's spiritual powers at work. Okay? And uh, I, uh, one of the books I'm reading these days, just to unwind uh, later at the end of the day, because it's just a collection, is The Sayings of the Desert Fathers. But I came across this. Uh, Abba Agathon was a late 4th century desert father, highly respected. And the brethren came to him one day and asked him, amongst all the good works, which is the virtue which requires the greatest effort? And he answered them, Forgive me, but I think there is no labor greater than that of prayer to God. For every time a man wants to pray, his enemies, the demons, the powers that be, want to prevent him. For they know that, if, uh, that it is only by turning him from prayer that they can hinder his journey. Whatever good work a man undertakes, if he perseveres in it, he will attain rest. But prayer is warfare to the last breath. Persecution takes us outside the walls. I talked about this a little bit when I was preaching at New Life City, I guess about a month ago. And I said, if you're really going to follow Jesus, guess what? He was executed outside the city walls, and it will take you outside the walls. And so this is part of what he's telling them about their relationship to the world. But I want to say there's two dangers that face the church. The biggest one, of course, is compromise with the world. We just slowly compromise, compromise, compromise. But there's a second danger, and that is that we just become difficult. We start looking for fights. We become defiant. We, di we, we disturb out of anger or rebellion. And we see both of those things, and he's saying, don't do it. Okay, so we just quickly covered the world, 
and persecution. The third theme here is the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Starting in verse 5. But now I'm going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asks me, where are you going? <coughs> Excuse me. Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the counselor, the paraclete, will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me, and about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So, <clears throat> when Jesus tells them, I'm going away, it causes confusion and then sorrow. Quickly, they're just sad. So, verse 7, he explains why he's going. Here's why I have to go, fellas. First of all, it's to their greater benefit. Related to that, secondly, only if he goes, if Jesus goes away, <coughs> pardon me, can the paraclete come. Only then can the paraclete come as the counselor, helper, advocate, teacher. Thirdly, it is Jesus who sends the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here to remind and to teach. He carries Jesus' message and purpose. So what does Jesus do? He goes and he sends. He sends the Holy Spirit. I've been thinking a lot about this the last two or three weeks. And I'm just, uh, I've been, you know, I got introduced to the charismatic movement from almost from day one. Well, from day one when I walked into a church. And shortly after that, I had this powerful encounter back in the 70s. We call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and I've had many, many, many powerful, powerful encounters. I've had them in Toronto. I've, I've had them all over the world. But as much as I've had that, this whole thing is still a mystery to me. Of, of being open to the Holy Spirit... Not here, but here. And, uh, and, and more than just having those ecstatic moments where he touches. You know. So he says, I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit will come. And the Holy Spirit, as we've said before, and when we've talked about the Trinity, he, he just celebrates the sun, lifts up the sun, points to the sun. Um, John's overall message about the paraclete, and he says it several times in this farewell discourse, is that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The, a couple weeks ago in John 14, remember, he said he is the spirit of truth and the world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. The Holy Spirit will confront with truth. 
and I think this is a big part of what's been rolling around in me this week. He confronts with truth. I'm going to try and finish tonight by going a little deeper into that. But now I want to go to one of the most famously difficult passages in all the New Testament, which is verses 8 to 11. Um, Jesus said, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, and you'll no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. This is so difficult that St. Augustine wouldn't touch it. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. In his commentaries, he just said, I'm not touching this one. So, uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Uh, but I'm going to try to say a little bit about this. This has mystified me for 42 years, this passage, to be quite honest. Um, I mean, long before I started studying this for, for this series. But let's just take a few little pointers here. Verse 9. I think, perhaps, what Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit proves to the disciples that the world is guilty of sin by refusing to believe. Okay, we're back to that cling to we talked about 20 minutes ago. A refusal to believe is the fundamental sin. I think it is. I think it is. We know Hebrews 11.4, without faith it is impossible to please him. Or is that 11.6? 11.6. But, um, uh, but uh, I think... If you look overall, what God calls us to do from the time, I would say of Abraham, but by the time I finish tonight, maybe from the time of Adam, is he calls us to believe in him and believe in his love for us and believe in his commitment to us. And so the first thing is uh, they're guilty of sin by refusing to believe. Verse 10. The world is wrong about justice. The spirit of truth is is going to bring conviction on this. Uh, It was the world, including the the natural powers and the spiritual powers, that judged Jesus guilty. But the Holy Spirit reveals that he was really innocent. Because, of course, he brings the life of Christ alive in our hearts. We know he's alive, right? Right? And the resurrection and ascension are the Father's verdict on the innocence of the Son. Absolutely convinced his verdict came in the resurrection. That Jesus was absolutely right about what he said about himself. Righteousness comes from above, from the Father and the Son. The Jews had accused Jesus of a lot of things. Uh, Even just in John's Gospel, they accused him of being a deceiver. They accused him of being a sinner. They accused him of being a blasphemer. And the purpose of the trial that they set up was to show he's not who he says he is. He's not the Son of God. And yet, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the advocate, will demonstrate that this death sentence was the very thing that revealed Jesus as the Son of God. Okay? Verse 11. We're angels fear to tread. The ruler of this world, Satan, was judged and defeated at the cross. 
There's a final judgment too, and therefore a total defeat coming when he and the powers are judged, tried, and convicted. At the cross, Satan lost his power over Christ's own followers, his own family, as it were, the believers. He lost his power. But it would be pretty hard to say, since since Paul calls him the God of this world, to say that he lost his power in the world. Just turn on the news any night. However, at the final judgment, Satan will lose his power over all. And justice will ultimately prevail. One of Martin Luther King's most famous quotes is the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. The whole movement is toward justice. And that's as much as I dare say on those four verses. This week's episode is brought to you by our latest efforts to free women from a life on the streets. A couple of weeks ago, Impact Nations brought a team of women to Kenya, where in one night they helped rescue 78 women from a life of forced prostitution. Along with our partner, Mike Brown, we have already found housing and support for 53 of these women. We need your help to get funding for the remaining 25. For only $100, you can provide two months' worth of safe housing, food, counseling, business training, and a small loan to help a woman get her own business started. I know that sounds incredible, but this is the power of partnership. So, will you help us? We've started a crowdfunding page at impactnations.com Kenya. Imagine the difference $100 could make. Wow. And now, back to the podcast. So, verses 12 to 15. He says, I still have many things to tell you, but you just can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. How much? Everything. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. So verse 12. The disciples' confusion uh, and growing anxiety. They they know this isn't just another night with Jesus. It's just shutting down their ability to keep absorbing. And after all, this is a long, long talk. Right? That you could probably spend an evening on each verse if you worked at it. So he's given them a huge amount. So he says, so much to tell you, but you just can't take it. Now, every teacher knows that feeling, by the way. Every teacher knows. When Sometimes when I'm there and there's a bunch of pastors and leaders and I've just got so much I want to tell them and I watch them just starting to shut down, right? Because it's just a reality. So Jesus just recognized that and said, okay, but the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who I'm going to send, he's going to do all this. Here's what he's going to do. Verse 13. He's going to guide you into truth. Uh, the overall message of, uh, uh, of this passage is that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He reveals the truth. And what is God's truth? It is always in opposition to the world's truth, the spirit of the world. I'm not saying everything in the world is wrong. I'm saying that, that the powers that be. Okay? 
Secondly, the Holy Spirit will only speak what he hears. Well, where did this come from? Have we heard this before? Yes, we have. In John 8, Jesus said, What I heard from the Father, these are the things I tell the world. Right? So the same thing. He says, I only say the things I hear the Father saying. Holy Spirit's only going to say the things he hears me. Tell him. And the fourth thing is, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. He says, by telling them whatever he receives. That just jumped out at me. It's like the mystery starts to unfold. He's saying you're going to get the full benefit. It's as if I'm with you because the Holy Spirit's not going to hold anything back. Whatever I tell him to tell you, he's going to tell you. Nothing held back. And if you look at this, this simple little passage reflects once again the triune relationship, um, which we've gone over so many times. Uh, from the Father, it comes from the Father to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, and then here's the exciting part, and then to us. So we're back to that wonderful word, perichoresis, the, the, the divine dance of God, the interaction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we are included in from the time of Jesus' resurrection, because the Holy Spirit comes to include us in. So it goes, I'll say it again, from Father to Son to Holy Spirit. And then the one that if you think about it, it's kind of mind-blowing to us. Folks, this is not uh, doctrinal. This is not theological uh, theorizing. This is, this is the mystical gospel. This is about us trying to get hold of the reality that the activity of what is going on in the Trinity, which is amazing and remarkable and never ends, we are really, truly included. We read it, though it says, it's as if we were included. But John says, no. And so this is why we need to learn to listen. This is why we need to learn to be still. This is why we need to enter in with faith. Right? Faith working itself out in love, right? Galatians 5, 6. Okay. The fourth theme. Everybody's still awake? Yeah. And as for you folks, I don't know if you are, I can only hope. The fourth theme is the theme of sorrow and joy. This, as I said, has been, I've been pondering this an awful lot. Uh, verses 20 to 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Literally, he says, amen, amen. That's just an attention grabber, okay? He's saying, okay, listen up now. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. Incredible verse. Then he gives an example from life. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she's given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will rob you of your joy. In that day, you will not ask me anything. I assure you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. 
Ask and you will receive that your joy may be complete. (coughs) Pardon me. Number one, he says you're going to weep. (laughs) We know that within hours they're weeping. You're going to weep. And they're going to weep because Jesus, who they love, who leads them, who is their great hope, who stirred their hearts, who did everything. Never been any relationship like Jesus. And Jesus is going to die. And so they're going to weep. But John, this whole theme tonight of the world and those who are in Christ. Because at the very same time, the world, the powers that be, will rejoice. He says, but but hang in there. You're going to rejoice again. And I think at one level, he's telling them in a matter of a few days, the darkest days of your life, you're going to see me again. And he writes about that in chapter 20 and 21. But I think he also is, is talking about a joy that will go on and on and on that's just going to change their lives forever. So he's stressing, he's going out of his way to stress the contrast in how the world and the disciples will see the event of his crucifixion. What I want to say to us tonight is, expect a contrasted view with how the world views events and people and evaluates life. Expect that. I'm back to what I said half an hour ago. Don't be surprised by that. It's a different life source. It's a different foundation. If they rip you off, don't go, oh my word, how could they deal crookedly with me? He's saying, come on, they're in the world. They can't even see the crucifixion and the resurrection. How are they going to see whether to treat you well or not? And then he says in verse 22, (coughs) after the example of the mother giving birth, he says, Jesus will bring joy that cannot be taken. And this echoes back to what we said last week, uh, chapter 15, verse 11. He says, my joy, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is a joy that is much deeper than happiness. This is a foundational joy. And this joy is the source of our security. I was praying about and thinking about on Sunday um, the last verse in Psalm 16. In fact, if anybody's got a Bible, let's just have somebody read it out. I think it's verse 11. Anybody got it? 16, 11, yeah. Right? Nice and loud. Amen. In your presence is fullness of joy. This is the great strength that he's telling them. You're going to be sad, but then a joy is going to come from the paraclete. It's going to be supernatural. And if you will live in it, if you will embrace it, if you will, as it were, absorb it, it will be the foundation and security of your whole life. (coughs) 
and then we get to a really interesting little one, and I, I'm not going to take a lot of time on that, but anybody who's been involved in healing ministry knows John 16, second half of 23 and 24. Um, it's, it's paralleled by Mark 11, 24, but it says this, In that day you will not ask me anything. I assure you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Well, it's a wonderful promise, but it's slightly confusing. <clears throat> in that day you will not ask me anything. But I assure you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. What is going on here? Well, what's going on is this. First of all, the word ask gets used six times in this farewell discourse. He wants us to ask. But here's the deal. Again, we get the Greek-English problem. There are two entirely different words that John uses for ask in this passage. And the first one, if anybody cares, Ereteo, uh, is used for asking questions. We would say, you won't, you won't even be asking me any questions because the paraclete's going to teach you, right? Um, but the second ask, Aetio, refers to uh, petitions. You're going to ask, you're going to petition the Father. Does that clear it up a little bit, if anybody's ever been confused? <coughs> Paraclete will clarify and teach so that they will have no more need to ask Jesus questions. Now, let's get to this one. Sorrow and mourning. You're going to be really sad. Um, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn over what is going to happen. The world will rejoice, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. For me, this is the heart of what's been going on as I pondered this this week. I want to talk a little bit about sorrow, about mourning. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right? The second beatitude, Matthew 5, 4. I think if we will let John do it, he'll take us into some deeper water right here. I think he can lead us into a greater understanding of the place of mourning, M-O-U-R-N. I think that mourning <clears throat> is about feeling the pain, the injustice, the brokenness that is all around us. Uh, in that regard, it is about compassion. Mourning and compassion are very linked. Feeling others' pain when the world seems to be oblivious. I find the oblivion of the world, though Jesus is teaching us tonight, don't be surprised. I may not be surprised, but it hurts. It hurts. Just go downtown. If, if, if it doesn't hurt, hang around the war zone. Um, I could tell you stories right now. Uh, it's, it's become really personal for me, one person that God's just really connected my heart to. So it, it's about, mourning is about feeling the pain of injustice and brokenness that's all around us. It's about feeling others' pain when the world seems to be oblivious. But there's, there's another nuance to this, blessed are those who mourn. I think it's to do with living as strangers in this world. Followers of Jesus will always, to some extent, live as strangers. First uh, Peter, when he's addressing the five churches in, in that part of Asia, he, he calls them pilgrims, strangers, sojourners. To some extent, 
when you said yes to Jesus, you left the world, you're not of the world, but you're still in the world, and you are living as a stranger. Because this world is really not your home. Although the world tries to tell us otherwise in a thousand ways every day. Just look at advertising. Look at politics. So I think it's about feeling the pain of others. I think mourning is about living as strangers in this world. And I think this, I was actually upstairs reading William Wordsworth, if you can imagine, before I came down here intimations of immortality and I was reading C.S. Lewis The Weight of Glory, I would recommend you it's a, it's a great essay because why did I go there? because I'm in touch right now with this morning that is connected with fundamental homesickness part of me is homesick I unabashedly tell you that and the more I, the more I press into the Lord, the more I'm on this journey that I've shared with you the more often I get hit with a wave of homesickness. This is not my home. The last thing, Christ's victory, and I've jumped down a little bit for the sake of time. Verse 31 and 32, he says, Look, an hour is coming, and indeed has come, when each of you will be scattered. See that word again? Scandalized? Each of you will be scattered to his own home, and you will leave me alone. That word has been resonating in me since early in the weekend. You will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. So a few points here. Again, he says, you're all going to abandon. You're going to run away. And he's not, he's just saying it to be honest. And there's tears in his voice. He's not scolding them. He just knows the reality. The powers of darkness are very intense. Remember we shared how there's this building, almost like darkness, in, in this whole discourse, there's this whole thing of, of this conflict coming that goes all the way back to John 1, verse 5, the light, the darkness, boom. It's a theme <coughs> all the way through here. So he's not accusing them. He's not saying, man, you guys are useless. He's just saying, this is how powerful it is. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be scattered. And you'll leave me alone, yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. You'll leave me alone at a very human level. Jesus is alone. What's our word for that? Lonely. Lonely. 17 times in the Gospels, it talks about a lonely place. You look at it, especially in the synoptics, he went to a lonely place. And I don't know what hit me so hard yesterday, but I've just something I was reading on, on the way of the Spirit. But, but the creator of everything, the second person of the Godhead, was alone. He was, a, he was left alone. He was abandoned. 
He was alone in that tomb. He was alone. And I don't know why that's hit me so deeply, but it has. The other thing is how many times he sought to be alone. I'm thinking about that too. There's being alone because nobody's phoning you. Nobody wants to go out for pizza with you. I shouldn't laugh at this point. But, but then there's, there's, there's another kind of alone where you just got to be alone. The older I get, the more alone time I need. Christina knows that. And then he says, but, you're going to leave me all alone, but, yet I'm, I'm not alone. I'm not alone, because the Father's with me. Jesus' lonely place was the place where the Father's home was. Do you hear this? He has told them not to let their hearts be troubled. Remember, we started the whole discourse with this. 14.1, didn't let your hearts be troubled. He told them, receive his peace. Peace give I to you. This peace, as he now emphasizes here in, in verse 33, is found in him, not in the world. And he finishes it with, with stark honesty. And I believe vulnerability. He says, the world is going to give you trouble. That is the opposition that comes from those who are in rebellion against God. But they can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. He has met it in battle. And you see this word, I I hope your translation has this because it's the most accurate word. And conquered it. Does any of your translations say conquered it? Or do they say overcome? overcome? Overcome, nice word. The real word conquered and it's the only time John uses that word ever isn't it interesting the peace and salvation spoken of throughout John's gospel all depend on victory they're not nice feelings they're not hoping for the best they depend on him conquering His conquest enables the disciples themselves to conquer the evil one. And what did they do? They conquered the evil one. They cast out demons. They turned the world upside down. There's a guy, Ramsey McMillan, who wasn't even a believer. He was a history professor (coughs) at Yale, who said all of his research showed that the number one reason that the church grew so much in the first 300 years was the casting out of demons and the healing of the sick. Isn't that interesting? Secular historian. So, because he conquered, they conquered. So, at a personal level, when we feel alone, like Jesus, he says, you're going to leave me all alone. When we feel overwhelmed, like Jesus in the garden, this is when we remembered his, his promise, I have conquered world. I have conquered the powers that be, the hidden and the hostile forces that come against you. Now let me finish this up with a small application. The last half tonight, there's two connected issues that Jesus presented to us, if we can see it. Mourning and loneliness. 
I believe that they are both highly formative. Highly formative. In mourning, we connect with the real mourning that God feels. We connect with the mourning that His creation feels. It's all all creation is growing, right? Romans 8, 19 to 22. But we connect with the very real mourning that God feels and we connect with others. But beyond this, I've come to believe that mourning, I'm not talking about walking around sad sack, being a depressed person. I'm talking about those times when he makes us aware of how alone we are. When those times when we just find ourselves mourning that is in our spirit. Right? I'm not talking about, I'm not exalting depression or <clears throat> negative thinking. But when he takes us there, I think that mourning sensitizes us to the presence of God, to his Holy Spirit. We learned three weeks in a row now that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. I don't think this is doctrinal truth. I think it's much deeper. I think it's the truth of relationship with Him. And I think that mourning makes room for the Holy Spirit to touch our most vulnerable and fragile areas. Mourning makes room for the Spirit of God to touch our insecurities and our failures. I've been thinking the last couple of days out of some reading I was doing In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they mess up. Verse 8 says, God's walking in the cool of the evening. That's an anthropomorphism if you want to know. But he says, where are you? He wasn't looking for information. He was reaching out relationally. And Adam says this, I was afraid, so I hid. I was too afraid of my failure, my sin. I was afraid that it would disqualify me, so I denied it. I hid from it. And in hiding from it, I hid from you. Perhaps in loneliness, we can stop hiding. Perhaps we can make room for the spirit of truth. We can make room for him to conquer because he conquers our deepest fear of his disappointment, even our fear of his rejection of our true self. And so it seems to me that mourning and loneliness are intertwined and that if we will let him God will use them to make a deeply intimate and radically honest place in us where he can dwell. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Next week, Steve is back for another Q&A session, and our special guest is Baxter Kruger, so be sure to tune in on Facebook Live. If you have any questions of your own for Steve or Baxter, you can email them to podcast at impactnations.com. 
And please, would you consider starting your own crowdfunding campaign for those women in Kenya who are looking for a fresh start? Visit impactnations.com Kenya to learn how you can help. Thanks and have a great week.